And we're going to continue um, where we left off in uh, the book called Silent Illumination by Guo Gu. And we were on a passage um, under the title Ghost Caves. different states that we can uh, get attached to. Um, He was talking about getting attached to a, a silent mind. Less common is when we attach to a state of clarity and take it to be silent illumination. Because we so rarely experience this clarity, when it arises, our minds immediately attach to it. This is also the beginning of the end. Everything goes downhill from there. When clarity becomes a thing, it becomes dead. And because there's grasping of and craving for this clarity, it doesn't lead to genuine meditation absorption, meditative absorption or wisdom. We're always having to deal with the with the wily ego and the way that it even in our most, uh, what we feel might be our most exalted states, it's right in there trying to uh, turn the event to its own uh, advantage. There are all kinds of traps in spiritual practice. Gogu continues, the second thing or other fork in the road is when the person stays on the method and truly enters into meditative absorption, the experience of which is like a plane taking off. It takes a tremendous amount of concentration and energy, but once it is airborne, it is smooth sailing. This momentum of concentration is fueled by the absence of desire. At the same time, the mind rests on the method without straying, achieving oneness of body and mind, and then achieving oneness of self and environment, then oneness of previous thought and subsequent thought. Um, This oneness of previous thought and subsequent thought is like continuity of awareness, solid awareness. All thoughts are stilled and the mind halts in the present. Meditative absorption is a natural state, and cannot be sought after. The seeking mind is diametrically opposed to the stillness. Desire agitates the mind. How can agitation lead to stillness? There are, of course, many levels of meditative absorption. Without going into detail, suffice it to say that these absorptions are unified states of mind. When we come to this fork in the road, we should simply stay with the method of practice and ride it out. After we come out of a meditative absorption, we don't make a thing of it. (laughs) 
There's a, there's, uh, when we experience these states of, of, of absorption, of oneness, which are um, so alluring, then there's this, just this temptation to step outside of the process and comment on it, go, wow, what an amazing state of mind I'm in. And of course, as soon as we do that, we're, we're um, making a thing out of it and, and solidifying our sense of self at the same time. So it takes great um, sort of self-control to be able to just stay with the koan or the breath or the shikantaza. In this, Garrett goes on about this state, this natural state of meditative absorption. That it happens naturally as we sharpen the mind and stay with the method. As soon as a thought occurs, the power of awareness simply dissolves. The power of awareness dissolves it, like a faint cloud vanishing in the sky. If we don't follow it, it simply vanishes. And th- this is where we get the image um, of Ma- Manjushri with his sword, just um, lopping thoughts away. It's, it's when we get to the state of absorption. So just um, bringing one's attention to a thought and seeing it for what it is, empty, then it, it just dissolves. I think this is what's being referred to. There's a, um, a, a verse by a, a Vajrayana teacher, Rigzin Chokye Trakpa. He says, Mind itself has always been free from mental fabrication. No need to ruminate about the past or anxiously anticipate the future. Remaining beyond thought, without attachment or a distraction, whatever happens, release thoughts the instant they appear. That's my advice from the heart. Release thoughts the instant they appear. Liberate them. Let them go on their way. Of course, they have no existence outside of our awareness. No need to ruminate about the past or anxiously anticipate the future. Both of these are merely thoughts, memories, worries, judgments. to our text so as soon as the power of awareness um, dissolves the thought it, it vanishes 
Practicing like this, concentration becomes strong and eventually unified. It's like a person riding a horse. The horse doesn't feel burdened by the rider. The rider doesn't feel awkward riding the horse. Together they gallop. They become one. Is there a horse? Yes. Is there a rider? Yes. But they continue as one. This is the unified state. The momentum of concentration does not stop. It just continues as the energy of a single thought. Still, from the meditative, still, from um, the perspective of Chan, meditative absorption has the potential to become an object of attachment. For this reason, all of these states above are what the Chan tradition calls being on the dark side of the mountain in a ghost cave. Why is it called a ghost cave? Because it is basically haunted by torpor, delusion or absorption. A dark ghost cave is where illumination of the sun does not reach. We get into the state because either we have not received proper guidance or have subtle attachments. Maybe we never really practiced exposing the underlying tones of our mental states. We don't see the presence of subtle grasping or rejecting of thoughts. We are caught up in that which is experienced by the mind, instead of simply experiencing, which is the most natural way of being. We're caught up in what is experienced by the mind. We go, oh wow, to ourself. And as soon as we do that, again, we've, we've divided unity into subject and object, however subtly. The antidote to these pitfalls is to recognize them and cultivate right attitudes in practice. But it takes a lot of effort to resist attachment to these states. I tell my own students to discontinue sitting for a while and do repentance prostrations instead, perhaps 108 prostrations a day. I tell them to repent for their karmic obstructions, which are caused by craving, aversion and ignorance. When a person generates a sense of contrition and humility, self-grasping and stubbornness diminish, and this also diminishes the obstacles. We have to want to change in order to pull ourselves out of these states, and sometimes this is hard because they are so peaceful and alluring. Lacking proper guidance, practitioners are likely to develop a habit of dwelling in these states. I think it's fair to say that some people just do want to stay in that this peaceful place and are happy there. Um, that's that's what really makes it a ghost cave. It's a kind of pleasant trap. Do we really want to let go of these states? If we do, then uh, doing this repentance practice can be helpful. There's, um, we, we do prostrations several times a day in Sishin and um, they're very powerful because we use the whole body to do a prostration and we lower ourselves and, and with our hands in the, in the gesture of, of um, an open hand shift moving up 
that we're we're um, affirming the the Buddha, our Buddha nature, and raising up the historical better Buddha with our hands, and uh, this has an effect on the mind. So if if we're struggling with with obstructions, then um, they're, they're doing many prostrations as recommended. Um, Master Sheng Yin, Guogu's teacher, um, and early on in his time as a monk, he found he was quite. Um, he struggled a lot with with understanding and memorizing sutras, which was part of his training as a monk. And his uh, teacher got him to do many thousands of prostrations over a period of time. And at the end of this period, he found his mind had completely changed and become crystal clear and sharp, very, very different from uh, how it had been before. The next uh, section is headed Wandering Thoughts. The opposite of the ghost cave is having scattered thoughts. We are linguistic beings, so thinking is natural to us. However, just because thinking is natural, it does not mean that we should let our thoughts run wild. That's how we became, become deluded in the first place. We become deluded, conditioned by our thoughts and feelings. The way we think shapes our lives. Thoughts, subtle subtle or coarse, dictate our choices and actions. So we have to be careful about what we think and how we think. If we don't create a healthy relationship with our thoughts, if we are enslaved by them, then life will inevitably be hard. How does meditation practice help us establish a healthy relationship with our thoughts? By going through the process of mental cultivation, we begin to expose our subtle thinking processes, learn to embrace them, work with them, and be free of them. It's like cleaning a room. If the room is cluttered, we can't do anything in it. If we clean the room, making it tidy and organized, we are able to work well, plus we just feel more comfortable. That said, whether the room is clean or tidy or not, the room's spaciousness remains unchanged. Guagu sets out these, these um, stages we have, go through in working with our, our mental uh, phenomena. First to expose what's going on in the mind, then to embrace and then to work with them and then to be free of them. I think this is a version of um, a little motto from Master Sheng Yin, which was to to notice, accept, deal with and then let go of our thoughts. 
we we I think most of us would like to go straight to let go, but we we this is not possible without really this the first of all acknowledging that there is a particular problematic pattern of thinking perhaps notice it first we can't do anything until we notice it then to accept it this is what um, Darlene Cohen was teaching again and again we have to start with acceptance then we can deal with it and eventually with insight we can let, let it go Kwagu is, is suggesting here that we need to do this this work of, of cleaning ourselves up in a sense, becoming aware of our subtle habit patterns and uh, looking at them honestly, doing what we can to let them go. He continues, From the perspective of ultimate truth, we are originally awakened. Thoughts, good or bad, cannot f- affect our true nature. Our true nature remains unsullied by the contents of, mind, of the mind. Clean or dirty, cluttered or vacant, our self-nature is not sullied by afflictions or thoughts. Still, from the perspective of conventional truth, we are often enslaved by thoughts When we think sad thoughts, we're distraught. When things are going well and we're thinking happy thoughts, we're ecstatic. This shows that we're prisoners of our ever-changing thoughts. Besides, when our minds are cluttered, especially with self-referential thoughts, we have no control over what we feel. As I said before, we make life very hard for ourselves and those around us. Um, in the previous text, we had the, the description of a half day of Darling Cohen's ups and downs, emotional ups and downs, being pulled um, this way and that by her thinking, which is the nature of saric life, the wheel, the wheel of birth and death. One, one of the, uh, or the, uh, Roots of the word dukkha is um, it's related to the axle of a wheel, and uh, dukkha is is the when the the axle is not centered at the center of the wheel, and so um, you get a bumpy ride up down up down up down. prisoners of our ever-changing thoughts. So we clean the room of clutter so we can experience the spaciousness of the room. Once we have gone through the process of self-cultivation and cleaned out our room, we won't see thoughts as enemies. We won't be enslaved by them either. We will experience them as the natural expression of the mind and we will be less likely to generate self-referential thoughts. 
judgments, primarily. Instead, our thoughts, and therefore our actions, will benefit those around us and will be appropriate for each situation. In addition, our wandering thoughts will diminish and we will be clear and focused. Some thoughts are beneficial and some not so much. But irrespective of what they are, if we're scattered, we can't accomplish anything. In general, the process of cultivation involves bringing the scattered mind to into a concentrated mind, then from a concentrated mind to a unified mind, and from a unified mind we see through the nature of mind. In this process, a method is of utmost importance. These, these um, four stages are part of Gogu's teaching, and they were also um, a part of uh, Master Sheng Yin's. Um, and they would emphasize that there is no such thing as stages in the mind, um, but these these stages can be helpful for people who are practicing. Otherwise, it can feel pretty adrift. So they're they're a kind of um, skillful means to see in terms of of uh, these stages. He says, this process may sound linear, but it is not. Sometimes we may be scattered or tired, but after shifting our posture or approaching our method in a different way, we suddenly become clear and can use the method effectively. At other times we may be using the method steadily and for no reason, perhaps while hearing a sound or seeing an object, our self-grasping suddenly drops away. So we don't necessarily have to pass through each of these these stages. They're just um, sort of schematic. I just repeat that last bit he said. We may be using the method steadily, and for no obvious reason, perhaps while hearing a sound or seeing an object, our self-grasping suddenly drops away. This this is always possible. And when we when we experience this, of, of suddenly our view of things being changed because our self grasping has dropped away, it gives us great faith. We may have to keep struggling uh, with ourselves in many ways, but we know that this is possible—a sudden shift, and and not one that we engineer, but but which happens. Some people believe that a method is just another form of contrivance. They prefer not to use any method at all. Usually those who take this stance don't really know what practice is about. They confuse a method with ideas about practice. Even a methodless method is a method without which the mind would be scattered. This is um, a a label that is um, sometimes given to silent illumination um, or shukantaza, a methodless method.
the purpose of, of having a practice or a method is to um, address the, the, our mind, the, the, the nature of our scattered mind, our confusion, our um, stuckness of one way or, in one way or another. If we're unclear about our method, how can the mind be clear? How can the room be free of cutter if we don't clean it? Do we leave it to chance, magic or faith? Remember, Cohen was talking about New Age people that she um, encountered who um, was, was seeking just uh, feel-good states, nothing more than that, um, and rejecting rejecting uh, practices that involved effort and uh, facing oneself ra- rather than just um, having somebody guide one in in a um, uh, guided meditation session. When we use a method, we recognize the various types of wandering thoughts in our meditation so we can better work with the method. Any kind of thinking process that strays from our method of practice away from the present is considered wandering thoughts. These thoughts are mediated by the past or future or they are otherwise subtle reactions to the body and or affected by the environment. In the present, there should only be the experiencing of the method. Thinking here includes both thoughts and emotions. Buddhism doesn't distinguish between the two. As stated earlier, both are forms of thoughts. Or we could say we could say that um, emotions affect our thoughts and vice versa, that thoughts affect our emotions. We probably more accurately talk about Thinking slash feeling. Wandering thoughts are those that take us away from our method. The first type is called scattered thoughts. He's going to go and specify these different types of wandering thoughts. So scattered thoughts are what we call thoughts that are random, fragmented, and without a beginning or ending. They have no underlying consistency. One thought may spark another seemingly unrelated thought, and then that thought changes into another. These are mostly impressions from the day, mental activities that emerge from habit tendencies and responses to what's happening in the present. I think everybody knows what um, Gogu is talking about here, the sort of kind of random, free-associating uh, that that happens when we we stop and look at the mind. Sort of a little bit like turning on on a radio station and then randomly changing changing um, frequency. The 
The second time of wandering thoughts is called discursive thinking. These thoughts are specific narratives that have, have a beginning and an end, or at least a process. Usually they are things that weigh on our minds, a project that we need to finish, a trip we've planned, and so on. Or it can be a, a difficult conversation we've had and we, we rehearse that in our mind and imagine what we should have said, this kind of thing. And um, they're different from the, the scattered th- thoughts in that there's more emotional freight often to them. Scattered thoughts just just um, kind of uh, random and uh, varied but these things usually, they're, they're things that may bother us in one way or another. can also be pleasant things, fantasies of different kinds. The third type of wandering thoughts are subtle thoughts. Thoughts don't arise devoid of feelings. There is always some sort of undercurrent feeling tone to these thoughts, however subtle, shaping our experience from one moment to the next. Subtle thoughts are not fully formed ideas, but are subtle moods or unconscious mental currents of our internal states. By unconscious, I don't mean thoughts that were once conscious and were then suppressed, only to resurface again. I mean the activity that occurs outside of the realm of our everyday conscious mind. For example, sometimes we have an intuition, a flash of insight while we meditate. These kinds of thoughts may feel spontaneous, but they are usually emerging from undercurrent of neural firings connecting with latent patterns that have been present in our unconscious for some time. So they're sort of things that are more coming from the periphery of our awareness. The undercurrents of our experience are encoded by countless subtle thoughts and feelings that group together, forming patterns. The more often these subtle thoughts cluster together, the more likely they associate together in the future. This is recognized in yoga chara as habit tendencies or seeds, Sanskrit vasana which shape our current perceptions by creating filters through which we experience what happens in the future. In this way, the habits we encode actually bias our ongoing perceptions and change the way we interact with ourselves and with the world. When he says about the subtle thoughts clustering together, uh, this is is, um, like what they say in neuroscience, Neurons that fire together, wire together. And it's on the basis of this understanding also that we can change our habits by our our persistent noticing we're thinking, dropping the thinking and coming back to the practice is uh, rewiring our brains. The more persistently, more avidly, 
frequently we do this, the more powerful that rewiring is. It is possible for us to expose all these different kinds of wandering thoughts, subtle or coarse, scattered or discursive, through training and meditation. To do this, we have to learn to relax into our bodies and familiarize ourselves with our bodily present, then recognize the subtle shifts that we can make in the underlying tones of our internal states. The more we experience, the more we immerse ourselves with the subtle undercurrents of our internal states, the clearer we become. That's the, the, uh, the end of our, our, our pitfalls uh, section of our techos. Um, we still have a little bit more time left and um, what we're going to do is continue on a, our Chinese theme uh, but, but uh, change, change the, the, um, the type of practice that's sort of behind what's being taught. We've gone through this, these last two uh, teachers, Darlene Cohen and Guo Gu, coming from a uh, shikantaza slash silent illumination context and so now uh, we'll just finish up with a, a small um, passage which has a uh, koan investigation context behind it of course always we can whatever our practice we can um, glean much from these these teachings but um, just to um, balance balance the books a little bit, we'll just uh, finish up with this teaching from a uh, master called Huang Long Wu Xin. Um, this is an expert from uh, a text of his entitled "Impetus to Pass Through the Chan Gate." And this um, master, Master Huang Long Wu Xin, is uh, his dates are ten fifty four to eleven fifteen. So, um, he was born a couple of centuries prior to um, Dogen's dying. Just to give it some context, and it's just a just a short passage. We're going to look look through. And this is um, translated by Master Xing Yin in his book on Khan work, Shattering the Great Doubt. Senior monks, a human birth is difficult to obtain. Buddha Dharma is hard to get to hear. If you do not deliver this present human body in this lifetime, then in what lifetime will you have a chance to deliver this human body? Do you people want to investigate Chan? Then you must let go. Let go of what? Let go of the four great elements and the five skandhas. You must let go of all your karmic consciousnesses accumulated through countless kalpas. Then investigate exhaustively what is right under your own feet. What is the truth of it? 
Keep on pressing until your mind flower suddenly gives forth brilliance, illuminating the world in the ten directions. Then, whatever your mind wishes, your hands will be able to obtain. You can turn the earth into gold and turn the Yangtze River into ghee. Wouldn't this be a joyous thing in your life? Do not involve yourself with reading words from books and discussing discussing the path of Chan. The path of Chan is not present in books. Even if you read the whole Buddhist canon and the various classics from Chinese philosophers, since all of them will be idle words, none of them will be able to help you when you are facing death. So, a, a strong, passionate admonition. And... Uh, We'll uh, have time to look into a little bit of it. Um, and we'll just read a little bit about, of um, Master Xing Yin's commentary as well. His pre, his sort of a pre, prelude to the actual text. He says, This morning when I came into the Chan Hall, there was a squirrel in here. When it saw me, it ran this way and that way, looked at me, then it ran around in circles. When I opened the door to let it out, it started at, stared at me, then ran away from the door. But when I closed the door, it ran toward the door. This is like you good people here. You have forgotten how you came in, and when the door is wide open, you don't know how to get out. Don't be like this squirrel. If you lose or stray from the method, as soon as you realize it, just pick it up again and continue. Don't be like that squirrel running around in circles, facing a dead end wherever it turns. The purpose of this retreat is to become familiar with the koan method. I'm going to be substituting koan here for hua do, which is the Chinese word, just means the, 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 the... essential point or the nub um, of the koan. It's a word that's used for this kind of practice in Chinese. The purpose of this retreat is to become familiar with the koan method, to understand how to use it, and then to apply it. Since we are in the simplified space of a retreat center, it should be easy to use those methods. All you have to do is listen, understand, and apply them. Unlike daily life, where there are many distractions, practicing on a retreat should be simple, so please try to grasp and use the method. Likewise, we have ideal conditions here for the practice. Everything is simplified. Everybody has been assigned jobs to keep the sashin ticking over. But every single one of us has many, many hours in each day to uh, come to grips with the, the, the method that we're using, to come to grips with our own selves. Whether you will reach enlightenment depends on your virtuous karma, but for now your purpose is to hear dharma, to become intimate with the process, and to let go of everything else. 
to become intimate with the process means getting closer and closer to the state of no self. To let go means leaving vexations behind. How do you become intimate with no self and how do you let go of vexations? You use the tools and vehicles of Buddha Dharma. However, to think that the tools and vehicles are themselves the goal is a mistake. In daily life, you use tools to accomplish certain tasks. Buddha Dharma and practice should be looked upon in the same way. A correct understanding and a correct application of these tools and vehicles will take you to your goal. So, not just our, the, the, the practice that we're doing, whether it's the breath or the koan or shikantaza, but uh, the chanting in Sishin, uh, the Sishin structure itself, uh, yaza time, uh, formal meals, to um, take up these different practices and understand their value and uh, let them work on us because they really do um, have an effect, subtle or less subtle effects. What I call your virtuous karmic potential is difficult to explain. In fact, it is beyond explanation. But essentially, if you let go of all clinging to self-reference and attachment, then the resulting state of mind is the ripening of your virtuous karmic potential. What I have just given you is a summation of the purpose of a Chan retreat, to become more and more intimate with the process of enlightenment. It is simultaneously letting go of vexations and suffering for the sake of yourself and others. How do you attain this goal of enlightenment? You use correct views and you use methods. The views give you a sense of direction. They, give you your, they guide you toward enlightenment, but they're only tools. Likewise, the methods are tools that you use to stabilize and calm the mind. Once again, the tools are not the goal. They are used to reach the goal, but once you reach the goal, your karmic potential will have ripened. And none of us, none of us knows what our karmic potential is. When it's going to ripen. But we just put ourselves in the best possible position we can in order for that to happen in its own time. So now he looks at um, he looks at the actual text that we started with, which begins Senior monks, a human birth is difficult to obtain. Buddha Dharma is hard to get to hear. Senior monks were those who held the upper or high seats in the Chan Hall. The term is an honorific for monks who have upheld the full precepts for at least 10 years. What is, cru- is crucial in these lines is not whether the audience is an assembly of high-ranking monks, but the Buddhist idea about the preciousness of human life and the difficulty of encountering the Dharma. 
the, the difficulty of obtaining a human birth can best be understood in the context of the six realms of existence in samsara. One of the six realms is the realm of human beings. In the Buddhist view, only human beings have the opportunity to engage in Dharma practice and attain enlightenment. Um, to cut a long story short, the, um, the reason why the human realm is seen as being so auspicious is that we, we have enough suffering in our lives to motivate us to motivate us to to um, goad us to uh, take up the practice, but we're not so overwhelmed by suffering that we can't do anything. This often contrasted to the to the heavenly realm where um, everything is so pleasant. There's no there's no uh, motivation for those in heavenly realms to to uh, work on themselves, and they're so so caught up in their uh, pleasant world that they don't even notice when their fellow heaven dwellers uh, start to leave. So they. They're not even really aware of, of the impermanence of their environment because of that. But here, in this human realm, we can become acutely uh, aware of impermanence. This was our theme in the, in the first few Teshos, the, the dukkha that comes from this, this uh, fleeting world that we live in, which, which makes our... Um, task, an urgent one, to wake up 